And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, my name is Connor Matchett and I am the Deputy Political Editor at the paper. With me, as per usual, is our political editor, Alistair Grant, our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, and our new political correspondent. Well, not kind of new anymore, Hannah, are you? Um, Hannah yeah, Brown. Yeah. Welcome to all of you. Have you had a good weekend, everyone? It's been fun. Wonderful, yeah. It's been sunny. It's been nice. Thriving. Fantastic. Well, we're... <laughs> We're going to touch on and cover, to start with, the big Scottish political news of the weekend, which was the hold the front page newsworthiness of Scottish Labour Conference, um, which took place in Glasgow's Royal Concert Hall over the last uh, three days on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Alistair, the big keynote speech of the weekend, other than Anna Sauer on Friday, which we'll come back to, was the, the UK Labour leader, Keir Starmer, on Saturday. Take us through what he said and if it makes a blind bit of difference about Labour's position in Scotland? I'm not sure if it makes a blind bit of difference about Labour's position in Scotland, but I thought it was kind of interesting. It's it's basically part of this theme we've got with Keir Starmer's leadership, where he's kind of pitching very much to the centre ground in politics. So it was notable, for example, that he quoted Tony Blair in his speech, and that got one of the biggest cheers from the audience, which you know is such a movement on from where we've been for the last few years under under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Um, in terms of kind of Scottish stuff, he was very much saying, you know, Scottish votes have never carried more weight in a future general election. He was talking about unleashing the true power of devolution, kind of referring to that commission that Gordon Brown's doing on the future of the UK. He had a kind of good line about running away from the mainstream is running away from voters, essentially. So that's all about the kind of centre ground and not having these internal battles that Labour's been having for, for it seems like, ages now. So it's all about kind of appealing to those voters and trying to make themselves seem like this kind of electable force again instead of this sideshow. So in terms of whether it's actually going to have a difference, I mean, these things are obviously hard to gauge. I think probably they've got a massive uphill battle in Scotland. I know you, Connor, yourself saw Anna Sarwar's speech the day before. I thought, I'll just say briefly, I thought one of the, the interesting things about that was the focus very much on the future. You know, he even had the word future as part of the branding. And if you think back to Richard Leonard's at the Scottish Labour conferences, the former Scottish Labour leader, his speeches were so rooted in Labour history. They were all about Keir Hardy, they were all about Mary Barber and the rent strikes, making references to these kind of foundational, you know, foundational stories of Labour history, which I think appeals to activists and it appeals to Labour members, but maybe doesn't really appeal to the people they're trying to they're trying to win over. So it's it's notable how far they've come in terms of their own branding, and they obviously unveiled their own, you know 
very much a, a branding revamp for them over the weekend as well. So they've got this new, this thistle in place of the, the Labour Rose. They've changed the kind of colour scheme a little bit, you know, trying to make themselves look a bit more modern, perhaps. And I think, you know, one of the subtexts was that the, the rose they were using was maybe associated a little bit with England and they kind of want to get away from this perception of them as being a, a branch office of the the kind of London Labour Party. So I think they've got they've got an uphill battle. They've got a long way to go. It remains to be seen whether any of this will have any kind of impact, but they're definitely trying to do something new and to appeal to those centre ground voters. I thought the SNP response was quite interesting because you'd see all these young activists who always watch uh, the other party stuff and are really desperate to find anything to go, well, they say this, but they've did this before. And the only real criticism I could see from SNP figures was, you know, Labour can't really win. It's only us. We're the only real option. No one seems to be really engaging with anything Labour had actually said beyond they haven't got a chance. Yeah, and I thought one of the one of the interesting things, actually, I went to a fringe kind of conference meeting on the Saturday afternoon and Wes Streeting was there. Uh, and he was, you know, he was very impressive, very impressive speaker. But he, he was also extremely clued up, it seemed, about Scotland. He had, I think he was probably quite well briefed before he went. But he, his line was very much, you know, hammering home this point about, you know, the Labour position is that the SNP are not an intrinsically progressive party. There's not going to be any kind of deal with them post-election uh, in the event that they had the numbers to make that feasible. So it's interesting that they, they're very much distancing themselves from this perception that they've ceded the centre ground to the SNP and they're trying to kind of move away from that and to kind of pitch their own tent in a way. But again, I, it's hard to say whether much of this will have an impact. I thought Annis's speech on Friday was, our listeners may have watched the whole thing, but it was 30 pages, an hour long. And I think to be frank, the view of the of the press room afterwards was, well, they didn't really say very much in terms of policy or anything like that. And I, I you know, I, I, I don't think that was the point really when it came down to what Annis was trying to say. He, I mean, this is his first addressed to a party conference. It, it, it felt to me like the speech he wished he could have made prior to the election last May, you know, setting out exactly what his Scottish Labour Party stood for as opposed to Richard Leonard's. I mean, there was some, you, you mentioned it, um, Alistair, about the, the kind of move away from history. I think the most powerful like section of, of, of Anas's speech was, you know, he spoke of a quote, culture of defeatism within Scottish Labour, which has definitely been the case since they lost in, in, in 2007, you know, adding that winning matters and we are not a debating society, which felt like a very pointed kind of jibe at the, the factionalism that is kind of, you know, gone, been the, the main aspect of, of Labour's issues. But the one that I pulled out for the analysis piece I wrote, which I thought was almost a rebuke of, of of the Corbyn era and and in particularly Richard Zan's leadership was, you know, he said, for too long we've had an economics-free debate in Scotland. We must change the culture of our economy, drive innovation and renewal and help create a new generation of entrepreneurs. Let me state this loud and clear, under my leadership, Scottish Labour will be unashamedly pro-business, pro-growth and a pro-jobs party. I mean, that is as far away as I think possible from Richard Leonard's stance. I don't know if you agree with that, Alistair. Well, I certainly think it's, yeah, it's a change in focus. I mean, Richard Leonard's speeches were unashamedly, you know, very left-wing, very socialist. And I think, you know, it's, it's definitely a change in focus to try and, yeah, it's, it's all part of that trying to appeal to the centre ground. And I think it's interesting that you're saying that 
you know, there wasn't much policy in the speech, which is completely true, but it kind of goes back to, it was something that Wes Streeting was saying at this fringe meeting, it's something that I know Alex has said before in this podcast, that one of the problems they had previously was that they had so many policies, there were hundreds of Labour policies and voters just didn't really know them, they didn't really have any kind of impact in, on voters, whereas I think what they're trying to do now is have a handful of them that are, you know, easily soundbiteable, that they can just repeat and repeat and repeat and just get into voters' heads and become associated with them. Not sure if any of this will work, but it's they're, they're trying to do something different from what they've been doing in the last few years. And I think it'll certainly be interesting in Scotland to see if that has any kind of impact. And it seem, seems as if as well that we've spoken a bit about how Keir Starmer has you know, channeled Tony Blair himself over the last few years of, of being in charge, but Anna Sawa was doing the same thing. I wrote in in an analysis piece that, you know, I think it was the, uh, this took a bit of Googling, I, I should say. It sounds effortless when you write it in a in a 350-word piece as if I just plucked this out of the air, but it did take some Googling. that The 1994 Brighton speech from Labour, from Tony Blair, when, just after John Smith's death, that, um, you know, parties that don't change die. You know, Anna Samuel was singing the same song with slightly different lyrics of, you know, to win again, we must change again. This feels like a, and it's evident from from Starmer's approach, but also from Anasawa now that they are first and foremost trying to have new new labour to an extent. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to get that centre ground back, and I think you know, as part of that, they've become unashamedly unionist again, which again was something that they had maybe, although they were always you know on the face of it, that's what they were, and I think under. Jeremy Corbyn and Richard Leonard, there was repeated scandals and repeated kind of stories in the newspapers because their position was sometimes quite ambiguous. The kind of London Labour Party was sometimes saying quite different things to what the Scottish Labour Party was saying. So it's all part of this new approach they're taking, this new branding, this new kind of revamp of the party. But as I say, it's just such a such a long way for them to go. I mean, they are the third party in Scotland. And if they want to change that, it's going to take quite quite a bit of focus considering I mean, the Scottish political debate is just so dominated by the constitution in terms of the way people vote. So it's always going to be hard for Labour to cut through that. Do you, do you think, uh, Alex, that Starmer's leadership will aid that that process in Scotland? Yeah, massively, because I just, he seems to have a bit more respect for Scotland. He makes regular visits. He's happy to talk about it. We've got the Gordon Brown review coming. And, you know, he's not, you know, quite crucially compared to his predecessor, he is not electoral poison. He is someone who is going to stand up and speak up for the union, which Labour had not taken a position on. I mean, well, you know, old, old Keir Two Flags, as uh, he's now known. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a passionate believer in the union. He's going to be strong on centre ground and is trying to push Labour to you know stand for to Labour to win. You know, the last the last Labour leadership was all okay. You know, you can go on to the principles of socialism and all the policies, but ultimately it was not a vehicle designed to win. It was a vehicle quite proudly designed to win the argument. You know, this current version of Labour, at least in Westminster, is not one that you're going to go, you know what, they really believe in this or they really believe in that. They just want to win. And I believe everything they're doing is going to have been polled within an inch of its life and designed to claw it back. And I'm not saying they're going to, you know, take Scotland back um, at a canter, next time out but we're hearing a lot less negative stories a lot less stories about infighting uh, and it just seems to be labor here is labor's response what the government have done here is labor saying this is bad by the snp rather than you will not believe who jeremy's been pictured with now which is only going to help them yeah and i think one of the other good lines from starmer during his speech was 
you know, he said something along the lines of you can have, you can win or you can pursue political purity, but you can't do both. So it's very much this focus on winning. And you can see that when he's quoting, you know, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, he's focusing on those Labour politicians that actually got into power, managed to make a difference. And that at the end of the day is what he's saying is the, is the important thing. It's not pursuing political purity within your own party. It's actually making a difference in people's lives across the UK. And briefly, um, away from Starmer, if we just look at what's happened to Scottish Labour since the NAS came in, I mean, you have all covered Scottish Labour before then. It was an absolute shambles. He used to ring the press office and no one would answer or there would be, and they wouldn't get a call back. I mean, the phone number didn't work for it. Whereas now, it's a much more professional operation. So forgetting the policies of it, you know, it seems a bit more like they're actually organised. Whereas before they had no interest in getting coverage, whereas there are a lot more, uh, just, you know, people behind the curtain, they're a lot better now at getting their message across than they were, whatever, whatever the message is, uh, compared to previously. It's definitely smoother. And I think in Scotland, you're competing with the SNP, which is, you know, quite well known for having a, a very smooth media operation, it's particularly online, a very smooth kind of social media operation and getting their, getting their message across that way. And I think if you want to compete, you need to be able to meet that or, you know, even exceed it. So, yeah. I think one of the one on, on Friday morning, one of the first speakers that stood up, uh, Malcolm Cunning, of uh, leader of the of the of City Labour, and, and I think it feels to me. I don't know if you agree, Alistair, just in general, but um, it seems to me as if Glasgow is a is 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 what Labour view as their kind of historic heartland, obviously, but also kind of the the meter on which they judge their success in turning around Scottish political debate in general the, the the approach from him was was firmly one of you know quite classic glasgow socialism but also a kind of real push against the snp in a way that you haven't really heard a you know a coherent three or three day long attack on the snp for you know their singular failings i think often you hear from the conservatives you have they have a coherent attack on the snp which is you know they risk risk the future of the union. They're you know they're they're going to make you poorer, and they're anti business. You know, and you understand what that is from the from the conservative side of view, uh, point of view. From Labour under Richard Leonard and and you know Kezia Dugdale, it was you know much more of a you know they're anti union, they're anti worker, and they're undermining councils. It wasn't really this coherent anti business, you know, lower quality public services. And it'll be interesting to see in May how much of that kind of re that kind of movement on the political spectrum hits home with local voters. Because I think if Anas has a bad locals in Glasgow, I think that will be a real confidence knock. Yeah, I mean, I would agree, and I think they they're definitely trying to capitalise on what they maybe view as this feeling among people that the SNP have been in power for too long, that their kind of stewardship of public services is becoming. You know, there's lots of holes in it. There's lots of things that just aren't performing as well as they should. I think one of the other interesting things, though, is that I noticed that Anna Sauer has been doing quite a lot with papers, you know, associated with the kind of Northeast, the kind of DC Thompson papers. Uh, I mean, just before the conference, he was on a, you know, another political podcast, which we won't name, uh, but he's been doing quite a lot in terms of the Northeast. And I wonder if they maybe view a bit of an opportunity in the sense of, you know, the energy crisis and the way the, the S&P is perceived industrially, like, I suppose what the perception would be is their lack of an industrial strategy, their lack of any kind of movement in that regard, and whether they feel they can p- pick up votes in an area that maybe they haven't often managed to make inroads in before. So I think the local elections will be crucial. Yeah. Well, even in Jackie Bailey's closing speech, 
yesterday, well, as we're recording this, uh, that would have been Sunday, um, she was kind of singling out places like Fife and Glasgow. And it was all, like you said, Alistair, towards a kind of claim that the SNP is outdated, almost singling them out with the Tories as well, uh, both administrations from UK and Scottish government are outdated and this is almost kind of laying out you know in Fife we need to tackle the job issues in Glasgow we need to tackle the outdated SNP administration as Jackie Bailey said so it is kind of yeah gearing us up for these May Council elections. This is what I thought was the biggest missed opportunity by all of the opposition parties last May during the during the 2021 elections was a complete failure to attack the SNP on 14 and take advantage of exactly what you're saying, Hannah, of that, um, you know, they need to be dumped. There is a general feeling of a need for change in Scotland in terms of who is in power. Now, I think what the Scottish parties have failed to do is turn that ire on the SNP. The SNP are very, very adept at turning that kind of we need change, we're fed up kind of feeling on this on the UK Conservative Party, who have been in power, let's not forget, for only two or three years less time than the SNP have. I thought that Scottish Labour had a had almost an open door in May and and asked kind of he kind of hit the post with it. He 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 kind of he began it by saying, you know, Scotland deserves better. And, you know, though that was his his go-to phrase during the May elections, but he failed to really kind of harness the power of the we're in desperate need of a refresh of change. And in the same way, when Tony Blair came to power, that was what was so powerful in 1997 was, you know, two decades of, of conservative rule. We need change. Let's harness that. Let's, let's, let's pull, pull that forward. I don't know, Hannah, I mean, you, you live in Glasgow and, as I said, I think I, you kind of look at Glasgow as a microcosm of Scotland to an extent. What is the view in general towards Labour? Because presumably you have kind of two camps, you know, people who used to vote Labour now vote SNP and those who are taught from the age of four that you don't vote anything but Labour. Yeah, so you do have this. I think what's come into a lot of people's minds right now is, like you said, the <clears throat> the longevity of um, the SNP administration in Scotland. I mean, I've been speaking to a couple of Glaswegian business owners recently and who are kind of feeling a wee bit out of touch with the SNP. And the big thing that they do say, like that they do single out is, well, they've been in power for ages and that's just far too long a time to be in power and we need a change. And I think a lot of people, I don't know, I, I, I don't like to speak too broadly, just being a token Glaswegian, but um, I do think, token Glaswegian and token women on this podcast, um, I do think that there is a big feeling of, oh, maybe Anna Sauer can can change this and can kind of renew the party. Like we say, it, I mean, I know it's so materialistic, but even like the rebrand of Labour and the rebrand of Scottish Labour focusing in on Scotland uh, instead of, yeah, like Alistair mentioned, there was this worry with the... I know it's purely visual, but this worry of the Rose being very English by focusing their campaigning and marketing on a solely Scottish platform. I think that is speaking to a lot of Glaswegians who might be kind of inspired by that. 
But obviously, there's been a lot of issues with recent candidates, with Henry Dunbar being an issue that was brought up, I think, in an interview with Anna Sauer. And he kind of shrugged it off on Sunday, uh, saying, you know, local party electives choose the candidate um, and I don't. And he wasn't really kind of, you know, saying that he would veto uh, this candidate who's been a Orange Order member and a senior one at that. So, yeah, there is there are still issues, but there is probably hope that he could be a future singularly Scottish leader uh, for the party. But time will tell. I would say as well, push, pushbacks like I know I'm probably not a Glaswegian in the sense I know many people would not view Bears and Mogai as part of Glasgow. But one of the things that I think they've stumbled on previously is that you know, if you kind of go down this route of attacking the SNP, I mean, the SNP have this strange position where they can kind of be in power in Scotland, but also the, the opposition in Westminster, and they can always kind of play off that, and it always works to their advantage in that sense. And I think, again, you probably expect, you know, the, the, one of the issues that happened with the Holyrood election just passes, it became almost a de facto referendum in the sense it just became so struck down constitutional lines. And I think as Scottish politics, you know, continues to work like that, it's just different to sorry, it's difficult to get past that. It's difficult to find a way around that. And I think that's something that Labour will always come across. It's something, a problem they will always have, even if they try and go down the route of just attacking the SNP on domestic policy. It's just a problem they will always stumble into. And I'm not sure how they get around it, to be honest. The Henry Dunbar story is actually worth touching on briefly, I think, because it's such a, a, you not not to give too much credit to our um, opposition and rivals, rival papers, but you know, it's classic classic conference morning spoiler from from the Herald um, and Tom Gordon, and it, it was a very interesting experience on Friday because after Anas's speech, there was a briefing on the record with the party spokesperson. Sawa is unashamedly and very proudly anti-racist, and there was an entire section of his speech where he was saying, you know, we must not leave islamophobia to the muslims we must not leave anti-semitism to the jews we must not leave sexism and misogyny to women and all of these sorts of things and there was one glaring omission given henry dunbar's selection which was sectarianism and we asked party spokesperson and said well the any attempt his response was any attempt to characterize an, uh, an omission which he also pushed back on of sectarianism to characterize anasawa as anything but anti-racist would was stretching credulity, but it did seem it did cause a bit of issue. I don't know whether or not Scottish Labour are unwilling to grasp the nettle of sectarianism due to the fact that in Glasgow, if you go down on either side, you tend to end up, you know, either alienating one side of the religious divide and and gaining the other. I don't know whether or not that's a fair criticism, Master. Yeah, I think it's difficult. I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, Henry Dunbar is obviously a senior or was a senior Orange Order figure. He's not the only one in Scottish local politics. Um, it's not something that's, you know, new in that sense. And I think it's obviously a difficult issue because the Orange Order is extremely controversial, but they do not see themselves as at all anti-Catholic. That's important to see. So, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I think, I mean, to defend Anna Sarwar in this, I think it's very clear where he stands on this issue. And I think I think the party comment at the time that story was written was you know he'll be held to the same standards as any other elected Labour politician. Yeah, it's it's a tricky issue, and it, it has been in Scotland for a long time. Also, just to kind of come off that uh, point that you made about them not seeing that they are not anti-Catholic, they're also an organisation that believe that there is no issue with anti-Catholic prejudice. And I think also 
on Sunday when Anna Sarwell was speaking and kind of addressing the Henry Dunbar issue. He did he did say, I know uh, Corey mentioned that, you know, that the thing that was glaringly obvious in uh, his speech was the omission of uh, the sectarianism that you mentioned, but he did say that he would root out uh, and stamp out, I think, two kind of dynamic verbs that were used when he was speaking. He would root out this issue with Labour and he did single out anti-Catholic kind of prejudice. So there was there was a sort of address of it this weekend. But yeah, we'll just see if that that is the case and we'll see kind of what, what does happen with candidates such as Henry Dunbar. Absolutely. It'd be interesting to see. But we'll we'll move on quickly to just briefly discuss the ongoing horror show and uh you know horrific experience of folk in Ukraine. Um, Hannah uh, Monday morning, there's some pretty damning statistics about the war visas for Ukrainians in, in the UK and some response from Scottish politicians as well. Yeah, so it was reported, I think, uh, a couple of days ago that only around 50 visas had been granted under the kind of the, U, the new UK Home Office Ukraine Family Scheme. Uh, I think that was as of Sunday, so it's been about a period of 48 hours since it was open to applications on Friday. Uh, now Nicola Sturgeon's come out against this and saying that it's just not good enough, you know, with the 1.5 million people already displaced from Ukraine. She said that there is a desperate need for the UK to step up both on uniting families and offering refuge more generally. There's also been a concern kind of from other kind of SNP party members. Uh, there's with how long the family scheme takes to enact and and to to put into place. I think there's a hotel owner in Aberfeldy who has been trying to get to Ukrainian people from under the sponsorship scheme that the UK government has brought in. And he's saying he's been given that it will take three months for these people to come through. This was kind of raised as an issue, uh, saying that delays are too long and, you know, these people are in urgent need right now. uh, And there's definitely... A big feeling of, you know, that, that this is taking long and there are still loopholes to go through. Uh, and this is leaving people, yeah, in a really uncomfortable and not great place to be, given the amount of, yeah, tragedy and upsetting circumstances that they find themselves in. And what, what um, Alex, for, for from a Westminster point of view, it feels like a, feels like a glaring open goal that's being missed by the UK government, just from a PR point of view, never mind a humanitarian and moral point of view, um, not to open borders up for fleeing Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, it's odd because as, I, as we saw on CNN and other uh, other broadcasters were like, well, these people are white, so maybe we should take them in, which is just the awful things that we've been hearing on broadcasts. Uh, not obviously my view if you've not seen that reference. It's really depressing. And we obviously had the incredible scenes of a Tory minister saying, there were great options for them to get here. They could they could apply to our seasonal um, fruit picking program. Fifty migrants is obviously rubbish, but I suppose the argument is the scheme is more open. We can take two hundred thousand. Um, a million have gone to countries nearby because it is you know it's considerably easier to get to Ukraine to get to Poland from Ukraine than it is to England. But then the scheme, you know, I don't say it's virtue signaling, but it's not really designed to have that many people, right? Like it's it's showing a willing without really expecting it. It's like if I don't want to see someone, I'll be like, oh, you know, we could meet up. I'm sorry, I'm a bit ill, but we could maybe meet up uh, last minute maybe, like if it's a bit far. Like it, you know, I'm not really expecting them to say yes to that. And that's essentially what the UK government's doing with um, 
are, are offering uh, to uh, Ukrainian refugees. But I don't know how they go further. They've tried to pivot it off as um, why they haven't just waived the visa thing as security concerns. So the idea that Russia wants to send extreme, will use extremists and send them here uh, to infiltrate the UK, like their money and people are not already running the government and in the House of Lords when they can be bothered to show up and they only do the bare minimum. Or running our newspapers, having had meetings with the Prime Minister in Italy, uh, which are apparently all above board. So it's not so much as an open goal as I think there is a concern over how to handle it and a lack of genuine will to do anything. The sanctions are enough. But it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge win for the Prime Minister. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video that they tweeted yesterday from the Prime Minister's account. We've got the Prime Minister talking about how, the, how great the, the UK response has been, how they were stopping Putin. And it's a video shot, you know, different angles of him talking. There's music over it. There's him meeting with leaders, uh, like, our, you know, archive footage, obviously, because it's not recent. Uh, and now you have Tory MPs briefing that he's got his mojo back, which would have considerably more weight if they didn't say he's got his mojo back every time he had a scandal, which is every time he opens his lying mouth. And there was an interesting point from Keir Starmer at the weekend, which was it now is not the time to call for the for the PM's resignation, which obviously is, you know, mainly due to the idea that we need to present a united front to 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 Russia and and uh, the threat that they pose. Do we think that's the right political stance strategically? We were trying to depose a tin pot, horrible, vile, murderous dictator in Russia. I'm not sure we really need to be focusing on getting rid of the prime minister. Like, what energy? And this is this is the really annoying thing. It's like you've had you've had Tory MPs uh, and and even staffers will say to me, "Oh, you know, we're all so focused, we're all so distracted by this. Oh, was it a party or not that we've let the Ukraine crisis happen?" As if looking at corruption at home in some way would limit, would, would you know, if we hadn't done that, there's no way Putin would have invaded. He would have gone, you know what? The UK is no longer looking at the parties. I'm going to pull back 150,000 troops from the border because they're going to get onto this. It's such a, it's such a misnomer. But the idea that um, Keir uh, should still be calling for resign is 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 absurd because it's like looking at ourselves when there is a tragedy unfolding before our very eyes. There is plenty of time and space to get rid of the prime minister even if it's not over the party gate he'll do something else because he always does something and uh, labor like labor if they're going oh boris needs to go while boris is going by the way we're going to do this sanction this action because people are dying on mass and being murdered by russia it's a terrible look it's not what people want i know that the labor party has been criticized a lot for the whole we support the government but at least when it comes to, you know, fighting murderous invaders, probably should support the government. So just to finish off our discussion about Labour in general, and um, particularly in Scotland, I'm going to ask each of you a question, which is, I'd like you to predict the name of the next First Minister of Scotland, presumably in 2026, and also the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Alex, I'll start with you. Um, <laughs> that's very mean of you. I know. Um, okay, so the next, the next prime minister. You know, I do think he's got a chance. I'd say it's really obvious, but I mean Boris Johnson is the obvious answer. But I do think I think we're going to go Keir Starmer and uh, Alex Salmond. No. Um, <laughs> um. Oh God, is it Hamza? Is it Hamza? I. Oh, yeah. Empty chair. Okay, I'll we'll, we'll, I'll, uh, I'll I'll save Alex from that, uh, and uh, Hannah, I'll go with you next. Oh, I feel like Mystic Meg. Um, 
let's see. I'll, I'll go Keir Starmer as well, uh, just to give him a chance. Why not? Um, and then I'm just going to say Nicola Sturgeon's. She's going to be there for centuries now. That's just what's going to happen. <laughs> Alistair? Uh, I'd say... This is such an awful question. Uh, I'd say Keir Starmer, I mean, it's a good question, but it's awful to answer. I think Keir Starmer is in for a good shout. Uh, in Scotland, I think it's just such a hard question to answer. I don't think Nicola Sturgeon will run for another term. I think she'll she'll want to do something else. Um, Read a book. Uh, yeah, well, write her memoirs, which I'm sure will be a good read. I just don't know. I mean, could it could it be, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think it's going to be Anna Sarwar. I can't see... Being a Tories, to be honest, I, I think it was going to have to be another SNP politician, realistically. So yeah, you're looking at maybe Hamza Youssef, maybe maybe Kate, Kate Forbes. Forbes. Yeah, yeah, I think yes. Kate Forbes is probably a better shout, to be honest. Um, I just the idea of Hamza is funnier, um, and my analysis will always lean to what will make me laugh slash panic rather than what I think actually might happen. Sorry. <laughs> well, for, for the record, I may as well answer the question as well, and I would go with most likely Boris Johnson and. I'm going to go with uh, none other than Angus Robertson for First Ooh. Minister, um, based wow. on a lack of reasonable alternatives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but thank you very much uh, for you guys coming along this morning. Um, if anyone listening at home, if you have your thoughts on uh, that final question, do let us know. You can get in contact with us on Twitter at The Scotsman or just drop us an email and you can go to our website to find our emails about that. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us uh, this week and thank you very much for listening. The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman.